Okay, folks, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Very interesting show today. We think you'll learn some things. I know I did. A little bit of international stuff, uh, some stuff on the Supreme Court and the President. Interesting stuff on Obamacare and uh, plenty to chew on with smart people. So glad you were with us on the Bill Bennett Show. I thought I'd recap uh, because it uh, was interesting to me, interesting to my family, maybe interesting to you. Uh, I was invited to speak at the Values Voter Summit uh, here in Washington. That's put on by a group called the Family Research Council, which is a fine group. They honored me last year. Love those folks, Tony Perkins and the great Suzanne Bowdy. She called me up. She said, would you like to speak after the president in the morning on Friday? And I said, sure. How often do you get that call? You don't often get that call. Um, so I said, sure. So we headed over, we being Mrs. Bennett, and I got one of my sons to come down, and, and he went too. And we went there and went to the hotel and in the waiting room, and the president shows up, receiving line of uh, no more than 10 people. And there was Kellyanne Conway and other people, and there's the president looking big and strong, bigger bigger and stronger looking than, than seems on TV. Anyway, he went through the line. He waved at me, and when he got to me, he you know he likes to talk to a crowd and says, "Oh, this is Bill Bennett, and I like Bill Bennett, and he's a good guy. Let's get our picture taken." So I went up and had my picture taken. And he said, and "Who's that?" I said, "This is Mrs. Bennett." He said, "Well, she's a beautiful woman." I said, "Yeah, sure she is. Look, look at her, you know." And he he did, and um, and he said, now, "Who's this guy?" I said, "Well, this is John Bennett, my son." He said, well, see, are you working for me, he said. And John said, no, I'm, I'm in private equity. And he said, well, um, you know, you ought, to, you ought to be working for me. So he said, hey, let's make sure we hire this guy. Let's, uh, let's pull this guy in and motion to a bunch of people. So I, <laughs> I don't know what will happen there, but it was very, very nice of him. So after all that attention, I said to him, I said, hey, what, you know, what about me, you know? I mean, I'm not looking for a job, frankly, but. What about me? What am I, chop liver? He said, nah, yeah, yeah, you're done. You're finished, you know. said something that's <laughs> funny. He didn't mean it. It was uh, New York, Queens kind of thing, you know, Brooklyn stuff. But good exchange. We had a very nice time. He was very attentive to me and to, uh, and to my family and uh, appreciated it. Then when he got up on stage, he uh, acknowledged me. And I'm being followed by Mr. Bennett. You know that, right? And I've been watching him say nice things about me before I knew him. Those are the ones I like, where they speak well of you before you know them, right? That's a funny kind of turn, like, I prefer people who like me after they've met me. I prefer people who like me before they've met me, because he's saying, before I was in a position, before I was the most powerful man in the world, he liked me, you know? <laughs> That's what he right. was saying. But very pleasant <laughs> and, um, you know, friendly and uh, manly. So uh, that was that. And uh, then um, he gave his talk. He finished, came off stage, and uh, I shook his hand. And I said, again, Brooklyn guy to Queens guy. I said, hey, thanks for warming up the crowd for me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and it was a, it was a great speech by uh, the president who, um, during the campaign, a lot of people thought he was just, he went to the Values Voters Summit before he was elected. And a lot of people thought, oh, maybe he's just pandering to evangelicals. Uh, but he came back. And he talked about the promises he made and how he's working to deliver on those promises. So I, I give him credit for that. No, no, that's right. I think I really believe genuinely he was more touched by the support of the evangelicals in um, 
in the campaign than anyone else. And my theory there is that he was accused so much of of so much bodiness, of so much nasty behavior, of so much, you know, sort of gross stuff, vulgar stuff, that to get the endorsement of the evangelicals Christian community uh, was it was kind of like, really? Really? They'll support me even though I'm, you know, even though I'm a sinner? I mean, I really think that was in him. And, um, you know, I said in my speech, I said, just remember, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. And um, I think that the, that really resonated with him, really mattered to him. Anyway, that was that. Uh, I gave a talk, talked about his um, accomplishments, talked about Never Trumpers and all the things they need to acknowledge that he's done, not just take three. I said he was going to destroy ISIS. Well, he's destroying ISIS. He said he would close down the border. Well, he's in the process of the wall, but what, 70% reductions in people crossing? And he said he would get America moving again and about to hit 23,000 in the stock market and all the encouraging signs of the market are there. Just have to get some push going, you know, with the tax tax reform and other things. But the major promises are being kept. We need the legislation now to back it up. But uh, good for the president. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, welcome back. Uh, We are delighted to have Andy McCarthy join us. You know Andy McCarthy. You should, if you don't. He's the contributing editor of National Review and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. He's also a hockey dad, so uh, we're getting him very late in the day. Um, He gets up at 3 in the morning. Uh, to get to the ice or, or or something like that. Anyway, an admirable fellow in many, many ways. Andy, thanks so much for coming back. Bill, it's my pleasure. Great to talk to you. I want to talk to you about two things. I want to talk to you about the faithful execution, not necessarily of the laws, so I guess it is a law, but the faithful execution specifically of Obamacare. But first, uh, what happened, I think it was last Tuesday, uh, in regard to the so-called travel ban, what happened uh, at the Supreme Court, and why is it significant? Well, you know, Bill, it's interesting. We thought it would not be much of anything. When the court issued its first ruling last June at the end of the last term, which uh, basically allowed Trump's travel ban, or what's been called his travel ban, to go into effect, um, I predicted, and a number of other analysts also predicted, that the court was basically ducking the case in the sense that because the the ban, depending on what category of, of alien we were talking about, only ran for 90 or 120 days, by the time the court came back, uh, the 90-day ban would have run. The 120-day ban, which is refugees, would would have been about to run. Trump would probably already have issued new guidance, and we'd be on to uh, litigation over the new guidance. Uh, and that seemed to be what happened because the court took what was originally scheduled to be argument on October 10th off its calendar uh, about a week before that. So it looked like this was all going to be a big nothing, and they were just going to hold that the whole thing was moot and just get us ready for the next inevitable round of litigation. But they ended up issuing an order which not only ruled that the uh, the suit was now moot because of the new guidance and, and exactly the steps I just described, but they also very importantly, and I think the Trump Justice Department argued hard for this and really needed it, they vacated the lower court opinions, which by which we're talking about these really lawless opinions, especially by the Ninth Circuit, but by other uh, 
lower federal courts, which which not only um, were very lawless in the way that they undid the travel orders, the travel restrictions, which really legally were unassailable, but also began to cultivate what I've called um, a jurisprudence of Trump, where the courts were basically promulgating this theory that this particular president is so different from other uh, presidencies that um, his actions and and proclamations have to be judged by different, more exacting law than yeah. the same actions yeah. and proclamations would be if if done by other presidents, which was yeah. outrageous. And uh, I, I think it, it, it's welcome that the court stepped on that. Good. Okay. And, and, and it was significant in that way. Is it significant that it was eight to one and not nine zero, or is it significant that it was eight to one and not five, four or both? Well, I think, yeah, I think both. It's significant that justice Sotomayor dissented because we might otherwise have assumed that this was just a kind of a pro forma, um, unanimous ruling that the court didn't give a lot of thought to, but there was obviously at least one justice um, who wanted to leave the lower court opinions uh, in effect and allow them to be uh, exploited as if they were real uh, vibrant precedent. So it's interesting that she did that because it gives us a sense of how the, the inner working of the court is. And it's also interesting that she was not joined by the other usually reliable liberal votes, the three other ones. So yeah. it was just kind of Justice Sotomayor on her own on this one. Now, apart from this, Andy, you have written extensively, and I have learned from it, and I want to tell you something about this later in a debate I'm going to be involved in about this, about the, about the ban itself and the criteria. Is this, is this reformulation that the president and his people put together any better, any closer to what you think uh, it should be? And if I, I'm going to mangle this, but if I understand I have understood you correctly. What you want is a kind of, is is as critical as the vetting of the individual to find out right. wherever that person is from. Does that person believe in the Constitution and freedom? Does the person believe in the supremacy of Sharia law? Um, that's really right. a pivotal that, question, isn't it? That, yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. I I, um, I really don't think um, the ultimate travel ban, what's been called the travel ban order, the new guidance, I think legally it's unassailable and it will be even the, even the ninth circuit should go along with this. Although, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I think we're far afield from what the president was aiming for, at least as a candidate, which was a system of uh, what he called extreme vetting. Uh, I think, you know, what, what probably is better understood as, enhanced or uh, ideological screening, which would give us a means to separate Sharia supremacist Muslims from pro-Western, pro-American, pro-constitutional Muslims so that we're keeping the right people out of the country and we're not having the problem that Europe has with these uh, enclaves. That, to me, was the, the big goal. And I think in that vein, the litigation over the travel ban has been counterproductive because it's induced the Justice Department to go into court and say, no, 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 we would never uh, be opposed to uh, Islam. There's there's no anti-Muslim bias here. Um, 
and, and you know where we ultimately have to get i think you is know. to take on the question of islam at least in the context of saying that sharia supremacism is better understood in our law as a political ideology that has the veneer of a religion rather than a religion and we need to be able to screen for it uh, and if we can't do that then i think uh, you know all these uh, travel orders are, are basically much ado about nothing but okay you said something here that i hadn't noticed before not that you haven't said before but i was going to say even though this thing may be a little off center by your lights and i agree with you again you've taught me this uh it doesn't preclude this kind of vetting right doesn't preclude intensive screening. They they could go about difficult. I think. Okay, Bill. I think it only makes it more difficult in that um, some of the language that the Justice Department has used to defend the president from claims of anti-Muslim bias will be thrown back at the administration if they try to institute the kind of screening system we're talking about. But you could say you're not anti-Muslim, but you are anti-Sharia supremacism. But that's a distinction that yeah, a lot I, of people won't hear. Is that it? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the, the problem the president has is that, you know, while you're governing, you have a lot of, uh, you know, smart lawyers and enforcement people who know how to yeah. articulate that, particularly yeah. in legal doc, documents. Yeah. Um, when you're a candidate out on the hustings, you kind of let fly. And I think a lot of times when Trump let fly, a lot of us who followed his campaign understood what he meant, but he didn't always distinguish between Muslims and jihadists, and, okay. and that's the problem I think you run into. Right, the Muslims and the jihadists. All right, more on this later. Um, let's move on. Uh, the faithful execution of Obamacare. Most of what we've heard about Obamacare from the major news media is that the president has taken these administrative actions, which he shouldn't have taken, according to them, because that's what Obama did, and he criticized Obama for doing that. And second, in so doing, he eliminated the subsidies, which are there for the insurance companies to insure poor people, so millions of poor people will be thrown off the rolls. Your article said, well, what he's doing here uh, is really faithfully executing Obamacare. Uh, are both right? Both versions right? Uh, no, my version's right. Okay, tell us why the <laughs> tell us why the first version's wrong. I like that. Well, you know, Bill, Bill, I think first we're we're kind of back to talking about the nature of executive orders, which which you and I spoke about a great deal uh, yep. when Obama was president. Yeah. And you know what we need to highlight for people is that there's nothing per se in principle wrong with an executive order, even a lot of executive orders, if they are. Um, limited to what executive orders are supposed to be, which is the the president ordering the executive branch to carry out the missions that the executive branch has under the Constitution and by statute. In those in that context, uh, an executive order is not only permissible, it's preferable because it's clear. It makes it it makes it uh, understandable the way the executive branch is going to enforce the law where executive orders get problematic is when they are vehicles for usurping the authority of the other branches of government, particularly right. Congress. So right. if the president uses an executive order to make law, uh, as, for example, the DACA program where, you know, President uh, Obama not only 
said that uh, you know he wasn't going to enforce the criminal laws against and the civil laws against these people, but also give them positive legal benefits like work permits and the like. That's a usurpation of Congress's authority because only Congress has the power to do that. So I think that Trump's executive orders to this point have been admirable in this regard, because if you read every one of them, he always cites the authority, whether it's in the Constitution or statute, that he purports to be applying. And when you go to read what he cites, it's it's clear that he's he's doing that properly. So I think these are proper uses of executive orders. And to the extent that the opposition to what Trump has done on Obamacare is CCC, he's doing it by executive order, and you guys complained about that with Obama. We weren't complaining that Obama was using executive orders. We complained that he used them improperly. Um, Trump's okay. executive orders okay. are proper. And in this particular, um, what he did was simply apply the letter of Obama, or, or I, I should say Obamacare, which Obama himself was not doing. The, the okay. subsidies to the insurance companies are outside the letter of Obamacare because they've never been – there's no appropriation that supports them. You can't spend money uh, out of the Treasury unless Congress appropriates it. That's what the Constitution re requires. Obama used his executive authority to usurp the power of Congress to appropriate funds that Congress hadn't appropriated – and that's why these payments have been illegal since they started in 2014. And therefore, what I said in my column about this was not that that the question isn't whether Trump properly acted in stopping the gravy train. It's why it took this long, because he's been he's been paying the monthly, too. But the point here that sort of got me was, you know, the, the title, the title of your or your piece was was, you know, uh, or at least in one place I saw was uh, Trump faithfully executes Obamacare. That is, he is the good and faithful student. The president is to faithfully execute the laws, right? And, th right, and that's exactly. that's what he did here. He was this is the irony. He was faithfully executing Obamacare, to which everybody is screaming, "Horrible, terrible, foul, bad guy!" When Obama was not faithfully executing his own law. And again, say again in what specifics he was doing that that Obama wasn't. How he was being more true to Obamacare and the principles and precepts of Obamacare than was Obama. Yes, Obamacare requires that if Congress wants to subsidize the insurance companies for, for their costs, Congress has to appropriate money uh, in the budget to, to do that. Um, Congress hasn't done that. So what, what, what Trump has done is applied the letter of Obamacare, which basically says if, if Congress wants to do this, they have to appropriate money. If they haven't appropriated money, the insurance companies – don't get these subsidies. Uh, so that is a faithful execution of the law. And to the extent that, that um, the media and the left have found that to be problematic, the problem is not with the president. The problem is with the law that the president is applying. Okay, boy, this point really needs to be made by Trump supporters and Republicans, doesn't it? That this, I mean, because the way I think a lot of people are reading it is that there was this perfectly good law that, that Obama put into place, compassionate and good and great and helpful, and then Trump has come along and made Trump care. What Trump has actually done, ironically, again, 
is to follow through more faithfully. I use that phrase right. again on Obamacare than did Obama. Yeah. And this is the result reaping the whirlwind. Now, yeah, do you agree, by the way, if you, if you, do you agree, by the way, that this will result in, in a lot of hardship? I do. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that Obamacare has resulted in a lot of hardship. Yeah. Um, so sure. this is a little bit of shifting of the hardship to, to the way the law actually is written. The hardship is unavoidable. It's who's going to, whose ox gets gored at any particular time. But if you really want to make a case to repeal and replace Obamacare, you have to make people understand how atrocious a law it is in the first place. And you can't do that if you don't apply it. So if they keep putting band-aids on it, many of which are uh, not lawful, in order to try to, to to keep it humming along, when in fact it's designed in a way that's where failure is inevitable, then you're never going to get the groundswell of support to repeal it. Got it. Great. Terrific. Andy, we promised to be brief today, and uh, you did a great job, and we thank you very much, Andy McCarthy. Thanks so much, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Okay, folks, let's turn to foreign policy. What a difference a president can make. Over a year ago, ISIS was on the move, increasing its ranks and its attacks each day. It was clearly on offense. Now ISIS, according to some accounts, is on the verge of defeat in Iraq and Syria, and certainly its soldiers are surrendering in humiliation and in record numbers. A year ago, Iran was moving toward nuclear weapons under a terrible deal constructed by the Obama administration. Now that deal has been decertified, and we're on the path to cracking down on Iran once again. At least I hope so. We'll find out in the next few minutes. Here to discuss all this with us is Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I'm proud to say that I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group as well. To learn more, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. And maybe, I, am I putting too happy a face on all this? I mean, they, they uh, even the New York Times said that this was a kind of record number of uh, surrenders, uh, humiliation of these soldiers. They sound like the little bit like the Nazis, you know, and German soldiers, I mean, in World War II, remember they all said they fought on the Eastern Front. Remember, all these guys right. said, "Well, we just we just signed up two weeks ago." You know, we just signed up two uh-huh. weeks ago. But I mean, uh, Mattis is doing something right, correct? Well, it's a very good thing that the uh, U.S. backed forces were able to defeat ISIS. That's for sure. And you put it you know, in the, the past Obama- tense. You, you put it in the past tense already. Well, in Raqqa. In Raqqa. Okay, okay. I mean, I'm very encouraged by that. And any time you can defeat that many terrorists and either kill or capture them, that's a good thing. One one wouldn't want to diminish that at all. But I'm sure the president believes this is only one step in a much bigger war to demoralize the Islamic State and, you know, as he puts it, radical Islamic terrorism more broadly. And so this is a good thing to do, and I wouldn't want to diminish it in the least. And Mattis and uh, the Defense Department and the military had very sound, uh, very sound strategy, I think, for putting uh, the Islamic State on their heels and making them uh, fight 
in the right places and defeat them. So that's all very good. Uh, it's just that during the uh, seven years that President Bush had to deal with this and the eight years of Barack Obama, the whole terrorism problem and the whole question of Islam in the world and Islamic terrorism has really morphed into a global ideological movement that uh, we've talked about before on this show. Yeah, yeah. And that global Islamic movement is still on the march, and it's gone from the Middle East to Europe to the United States to Asia and elsewhere. And so good to defeat the Islamic State, but we have to realize, too, that it's on the march in other places, and I think the president understands that. And I think his national security team mostly understands that. And so let us let us take this as a good win and uh, realize there's many more to come. Okay, fair enough. I'm I'm going to be um, resolutely optimistic here to your to your guarded pessimism or mixed optimism and pessimism. But uh, let's back up a little bit. What is it, just I'm curious, militarily, that Mattis or, or Trump, uh, the team, has done here that uh, that uh, Obama didn't do, Bush didn't do, or the generals there didn't do? I'm hearing from military types. They told us to just get it done, um, you know, altered the rules of engagement some, uh, <clears throat> sent in the firepower, and... Uh, and the men, um, they just—they were just serious about it in a way that they weren't before. Is that what you sense? Is that what you hear? Yeah, that's what I sense as well. And also an unequivocal commitment to get it done. Okay, it's when good. you send the—it's when you send the mixed messages that Obama did, and you're not quite committed. Yeah. Or in fact, there are there are points when you actually support the Islamic State which I think the Obama administration did early on unintentionally, or maybe intentionally. But when you send mixed messages and there's not a clear signal that we're committed to winning, then the other side side gets emboldened. They're moralized, not demoralized, and they're able to hold out. Here, I think they saw that the gig was up, at least in Raqqa. I remember you and I talking years ago about this, and and um, you said something like, "There's nothing quite like, quite as humiliating uh, and and as deflating to a cause as defeat." Now, surely word is getting out. I mean, I know you said it's spreading around the world and Indonesia, other places, but people must have seen or heard or somehow gotten a glimpse of the fact that these soldiers are surrendering. These ISIS guys, they're going with their tails between their legs. They're they're being beaten and beaten down. Uh, you know, their hands behind their heads. Uh, they're in terrible shape. I mean, this is, you know, how do you, how do you deflate a movement? This is one way you deflate a movement is to, is to kill a lot of these people, take them down. I mean, doesn't that have not just the effect there in Raqqa and immediate surroundings, but also have some ripple effect? Oh, sure. And I don't, I don't want to diminish those things at all. Uh, and absolutely. I mean, the things we've argued about on this show or agreed with on each other, I think, on the show is that you have to demoralize the cause of Islamic terrorism or radical Islam, however we want to phrase that, so that they think it's not a good idea to go try to capture territory in the Middle East or engage in terrorism uh, 
in the United States or in, in the West. But I was, um, I was giving a talk the other day, uh, and I was making the point about World War One. In World War One, there's an armistice in November of 1918, and eventually it would take till June of 1919 to eventually have the Treaty of Versailles. But the yeah. Germans yeah. started rearming in December of 1918, a month after the armistice. They started rearming in Switzerland yeah. and elsewhere because yeah. they hadn't been defeated, and, and even though they may have lost the war, they were not discouraged. And so even though we can help you know, the Syrian forces defeat the Islamic State, that doesn't mean they're completely defeated or discouraged. And because it's morphed into a global ideological movement, it'll have champions elsewhere. Not far from, not very far in the great scheme of things, the Iranian-backed forces are going after parts of northern Iraq, yeah. and taking yeah. parts of northern Iraq. And so it's not like this war has been won or the cause of radical Islam defeated. And I don't want to, you know, throw cold water on this. I'm saying it's a good thing. But we have to put it in the context of a much longer war and much more serious things that have to happen and a realization that Islam as a political military ideology is very adaptable to these kind of setbacks. Yeah. And that there it's very difficult to have a total victory against them because they've had these periods in their history where they do get setbacks and they find ways of of uh, you know yeah. winning yeah. again, coming but, back. And that's that's, a, that's all I'm suggesting. Okay, but let's uh, you mentioned Iran. I want to get on to Iran here. I'm glad you brought it up. But one last thing. So how do you uh, if you haven't destroyed the hopes for the caliphate worldwide, you've destroyed it among some people at least, or discouraged them. Uh, how do you continue this? Do you do you move your troops and move your armory and your your arsenal uh, to other parts of the world, chase them down wherever they are, or is it a multi pronged effort? In other words, if we say, okay, we've won in Raqqa and we've won in Mosul and, and other places, uh, how do we win in the other places? Does it take the same thing? Yeah, well, that's I mean that's a great a great question. It seems like the president and the country doesn't have an appetite yeah. for going around the world in this way. Yeah. And and that's why President Trump was right, you know, as a private citizen to criticize our strategy in dealing with Islam this way. That do you chase this all around the world? And in chasing it around the world, can you sustain the, the uh, willingness of a free people like ours to continue to send their sons and daughters to remote places in ways that don't seem quite uh, quite worth okay. it for the American people. That I mean, so that but that's a that's a serious thing that we did not quite get right early on. Okay, and now we're playing catch up when it comes to strategy, aren't we? Yeah, let me let me break down that question to two questions. Uh, is is that what it takes? That is, is that what it is you have to do? What you've done in Raqqa, you've got to go then do in Indonesia and, and Iran and other places. And, you know, in, in terms of means and ends, is that what it is that has to be done? And then the second question is, do we have the will 
uh, to do it, President Trump and, and, the, and the American people? Well, taking the first part of that question, uh, to, do, to discourage the cause of Islam, whether it's in Iran or elsewhere, they have to be persuaded that it's a losing proposition to challenge the United States right. and the West. Right. Now, can that be done absent military engagement? And the answer is we hope so, because we don't want to have to fight 1.3 billion Muslims around the world who may mean us harm. But we may have to construct a military that can definitively be able to strike out at whatever parts of the Islamic world mean our destruction. Okay. So that so that when they do present a problem, they know with absolute certainty we are going to come there and destroy them, whether with an army or with munitions. Today okay. they don't quite think we're going to do that. Okay, but do there they, is. I, I mean, let me ask you: Do you yeah. think the American people think that we're going to go around the world? Uh, I, I I don't know. No, I guess not. But I, I imagine a lot of them. If you said, "Look, here's what we've done in Raqqa. Now this will require us to do it in a few other places," they'd say, "Okay, go to it." I think a lot of Americans would say that. But no, nothing encourages them like like victory. You know, I, I I learned a long time ago the American people will put up with a lot. They'll live with the casualties if they think you're serious about what you're doing, and if the cause if the cause is right. But but I wanted to insert it. Uh, that's my own view. But, but I want to insert another point here. Short of military. You know, there's been a whole lot said about diplomatic and political. So there's also a propaganda war. I mean, you you can get these this footage out all over the place, can't you? I mean, uh, you know, and the, we sh- and we should, yes, absolutely. Surren- surrender of parts of the German army in World War Two, not World War One. You know, were were things that were you know photographed and sent around to the rest of the German army. You know, absolutely. Okay. No, okay. no, no. That, that, no, I'm. I think that kind of propaganda war is something we should be waging. They're okay. certainly waging it. The, the, I mean, they're certainly waging it among Islamic uh, yeah. migrants to the West and trying to inspire them. And so we need to show them what happens when they engage U.S. and Western-backed forces, that they lose. Totally, You're totally right about that. And I, 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 uh, okay. I think we ought to be doing much more of that than we are doing. But of course, I mean, for the American people, back to the American people, to salute this and to say, go, go, all right, now go somewhere else and do it. They have to know about it. I've been struck by how many people don't know about it. I don't know if this is fake news or phony news. The bigger problem to me has always been lack of accurate news, you know, and that's what we need. We need, by the way, something on one of these magical websites and, and, uh, you know, social media that, that tells the truth about things. You know, a lot of people I've talked to say and pointed out, man, we're just kicking their butts in Raqqa. Uh, people glad to hear that, and then they'd be encouraged to go further. I right now think they'd be more inclined, the American people, once they digest this news, uh, than perhaps the president, who is, is hesitant about uh, you know about committing. We we heard that all through the campaign. I don't know. I mean, I think he can be persuaded, but um, I, I I think they'd be in if if they knew. And if they knew how successful we've been and what what more it needs to take, what what more has to be done to get this thing over with? Yeah, I uh, I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, I'd like to th- I'd like to think okay. that they had explained to him to, to them 
what you're suggesting, and it was clear, because the big caveat in what you're saying is that it, the objectives are going to be clear, but the objectives objectives aren't so clear very often. I mean, Trump didn't doesn't like the hostility, for instance, in northern Iraq between the two different sides, both of which we support. We're supporting yep. the Kurds and we're supporting the um, the Shiite parts of Iraq, sure. Iraqi you know forces. So there, there's a great example. If we intervene there, whose side are we on? Are we on the side of the Kurds, which have been relatively loyal but betrayed by the United States quite often in these kind of things? Or do we back the other side? Short they're, answer they're, to that. They're, all, they're almost all Islamic. We'll Short answer to that. Is, Short yeah. answer to that is we're with the Kurds, aren't we? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. But Let's there, go are, to... there, there, there are forces on the other side, too, and we're ostensibly backing them, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. As are the Iranians, which makes this confusing. Right. And so we try to explain this to the American people. It's not so easy yeah, for yeah. them to understand. No, there it's isn't not. the kind of clarity you had when you were fighting the Germans or the Japanese right, in World War II. Right, right, right. Right, not as clear as the axis, right. Okay, let's go to the Shia. Let's go to Iran. Uh, the president's decision here on the Iran deal, was this the right thing to do, at least step one? Absolutely. It was. And the, pre- and the president saw that the Iranians were violating not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, uh, or the spirit of the agreement, the JCPOA. And the, as the president has said, this is a very bad agreement. And so he took the the sensible first step of decertifying it and then allowing Congress to go and work out future details of this, things they they should have been doing more of when it was first crafted under Obama. Uh, But the Iranians, under this agreement, they agreed not to do certain things, but we don't know whether they're doing or not doing the kind of weapons designed, uh, the kind of scientific work behind a nuclear weapon that we suspect they are engaging in. It would be crazy for them not to be engaging in. And even though there are certain places that the inspectors can go to look at uh, the nuclear sites, there's also many other places that they're not allowed to go. And so... This thing is such a bad agreement. It's hard to. It, it, it's very hard to defend either staying in it, uh, or not just getting out of it immediately. But the president, I think, wanted to work with Congress and wanted to show the allies that he was willing okay. to work with them on getting this right. And so he did the he did the sensible first thing. But he's going to have to do a lot more for people to, uh, uh, or the Congress is going to have to do a lot more, and. I don't think there's any way to really fix the agreement. So this is just a preclude to to getting out of it altogether. What do you, quickly, what do you think Congress uh, should do and will do? I think if Congress actually held hearings and went over the parameters of the deal, the agreement, they would they would see that it can't be fixed and they would they would you know encourage the president to withdraw altogether. You think that's what they I don't, would I don't, do? I don't, I don't see any amount of fixing of this. Yeah. Because the fixing it depends on knowing everything about Iranian society that we simply cannot know. 
we can never really know whether they're doing the kind of research on nuclear weapons that they say they're not doing. And because because it's a closed country, we can't inspect every kind of secret part of Iran where they may actually be enriching uranium sure. and producing weapons. We won't know. You can only have agreements with people you trust. Yeah. We don't trust we don't trust Iran and Iran still wakes their children up every day and has them recite death to America and death to Israel. Yeah. Yeah. The mere fact that you would sign an agreement with a country like that is absurd. Absurd on its face. And yep. at the same time, they sponsor terrorism against the West, including the United States. And they themselves say in their doc, uh, military you know, doctrine that they actually publish that they have a strategy for using nuclear weapons against the United States. And they say these things on a regular basis, and they're working with the North Koreans on these nuclear weapons and missilery, so that it yeah. really would, would almost defies any kind of common sense that you would, in, you would engage in agreements with these people, so which, I don't is why Trump has been, which is why Trump has been pushing. All right, so I, office. I think he thinks we should get out of it. I think we should get out of it. You think we should get out of it. If Congress doesn't recommend that, can he still get us out of it? Absolutely, he can. Okay. okay. And uh, I think if Congress doesn't do it, he will get us out of it. Good. And Good. should get us out of it. And I think I think merely the process of having Congress examine all these things will be a useful uh, piece of public education so that Americans actually know what the JCPOA was all about and just how silly the whole thing is and why it points to a need for building the kind of defensive systems that we've talked about, you know, the kind of missile defense systems right. that would prevent these awful weapons um, in the first place or prevent them being able to attack the United States or Israel or or the West. Yeah, Israel, you mentioned, I noticed... Uh... Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saluted what the president did here as well. So, and I'm sure he wants the same exit, right? Oh yeah, he yeah. he sees with clarity the Iranian design, and there are a lot of allies in Europe that we're dealing with here as well. Yeah, because our Europe, our, our European allies, I think a lot of people don't appreciate this. Our European allies do a lot of business with the Iranians, and so. Getting out of the deal will then lead to eventually sanctions if they pursue their, uh, their weapons program, which we believe they are to this day. And the reimposition of sanctions will hit Western countries that are selling, uh, you know, all sorts of things to the Iranians. And uh, yeah. they're making money at it. So you can see why the, the Germans or the French or the British wouldn't be eager to have this decertified because they're making money in the process. And so far the Iranians are not putting them in their crosshairs, but they're putting the U S in their crosshairs and Israel. And so, yeah. So, so the Europeans have a kind of clarity, a kind of commercial clarity, uh, but the, uh, or, 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 or commercial conflict. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I, I think Israelis. there's sensible, sensible Europeans who see the problem. Right. Right. But the Israelis have, to use an overused word of our time, have, have a kind of existential clarity, right? 
Absolutely. And so should the United States. Yeah. Because the Iranians have, have, in their weapons program, talked about using an EMP weapon to destroy the United States. And you know, people can go to our website and learn more about the EMP discussion. But the mere fact that they talk about using these weapons in that way means they would like to not just destroy an American city, but would like to destroy the entire country by knocking out our electric grid. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So it's, it, 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 it's quite serious in that regard. And Trump sees the seriousness and uh, is responding accordingly, thankfully. AMStrategy.org is what uh, Brian is just recommending. Go to that site. Brian Kennedy is the president of the American Strategy Group. Brian, thank you very much for this update. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. You know, over the past few weeks, we've highlighted the timely and important comments of our friend Steve Wynn about the Las Vegas attack. And boy, were they timely and prescient. But today, we're going to return to my exclusive ongoing conversation with Steve, Chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and Finance Chair of the Republican National Committee. In this segment, we discuss how Democrats want us to believe that there's a serious race problem in America today, but when we look at how Americans responded to the recent hurricanes and even the attack in Las Vegas, we saw none of that. I saw Americans of all races helping each other, policemen of all races helping victims and their families, and that's the more accurate picture of race in America, isn't it? Here's Steve's response. You know, Bill, the the notion of polarization of the races in America, the division between black and white citizens. I've been around for 75 years. I grew up in an integrated, totally socially integrated neighborhood in upstate New York. In my whole life, I never, ever have been aware in modern, well, let's say in the last 30 years, of divisions until Barack Obama got to be president. And all of a sudden, everything seemed to be about the polarization of black and white citizens. Yeah. That never happened with Rab. Even when Martin Luther King was straightening things out. Yeah. When Martin Luther King was willingly with, with, uh, with Rab, Ralph Abernathy and, and John taking beatings in order to stop prejudice and segregation. Most of us were on their side, and it, and it got fixed. But all of a sudden, Did when you? Barack got to be president in the last four years especially, everything seemed to get worse. Yeah, you're right. Exaggerated and, 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 and distorted. And my friends in the African-American community here in Las Vegas at the Urban League, we didn't understand it because we're all friends and working together and conducting programs and elevating everybody and and doing our best to make sure that there was equality of opportunity. And all of a sudden we're being told that we were against equality of opportunity and we were being described, us business people and those of us in communities around the country, we're being described in terms that were false, that were, just, that were misleading. And that narrative seemed to make it onto TV. And that's another thing that upset working people in America. They were being described as racist or prejudiced. 
and they weren't. They're being described as being against women, and we weren't. I had a woman president of my company in 1977. The almost 57% of my senior executive staff are females in this company. All of a sudden, we're being described in terms the opposite from what we were experiencing yeah. in our communities. Yeah. And that added to the frustration of health care. For some reason, the idea was the Democrats, I guess, thought, okay, in order to get control of someone, you have to convince them first that they're a victim. Because if you convince someone that they're being victimized, then, of course, you now cast yourself as a person that's going to ride in on a white horse and fix it. A person who's not suffering, who's not a victim, doesn't need any help from you. So the, the, poly, the program was convince the public that they were victimized, create a false narrative, create a lie, a big lie, make everybody a victim. And some people will believe it and get out in the streets and say, stop hurting me when they're not being hurt. Yeah. And the next thing you know, another group reacts to them and you get racial unrest that was created out of thin air. The level of racial unrest that took place in America was as a result of a propaganda program. That's not to say that every situation that we can conceive of in society can't be improved. There isn't any, any condition, employment, community, social relationships, there isn't anything that can't be better than it is today. But the notion that one group of people in America are against and trying to stomp on another group is a nasty lie. Yep. And it was being used during this campaign in a terrible way. Yep. And not true to our experience. I mean, just not true to most Americans' experience. Not true not to the way the, they live. I've got 15 or 20,000 employees around here. None of them believe any of this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm their surrogate. I am first and last a representative of my employees. First, my stockholders second. And for the past 50 years, I have maintained a close, intimate relationship with the workforce, the, the staffs, the people that worked in all of these 13 hotels that we've built. I know them. They know me. And when I say that I know what my employees are thinking, I'm one of those people that can be, I can be quizzed on the program, on this, on that, on that gesture. And anybody that thinks it's not true can go come to one of our hotels and interview any one of our employees and ask them privately. We do talk here. And what I'm hearing from my employees made a, a political activist out of me. Steve, you, you speak about these issues with uh, such deep experience, conviction, and passion. And uh, people just love listening to this and, and learn from it, and they write us. But I want to change gears a little bit, if you're willing, because what they also write us about in regard to these discussions with you is your stories. You know, there's a certain magic to once upon a time when you say that to a person. <laughs> And if it turns out to be an engaging story that follows, you told me recently several engaging stories. I just want to mention a couple and ask you to tell the audience. I, I don't. I have six of them here. We don't have time. You Tony, remind me of them. Tony Saylor and President Bush. I think that Tony Saylor. Saylor. Yeah. 
Tell the audience who, he, who Tony Seller is. Well, uh, when I was a kid, I was a competitive skier in the 50s in high school. And there was a great ski hero from Austria named Tony Seiler. And in the 1956 Olympics, he won three gold medals in all three of the major events in skiing, downhill, slalom, and giant slalom. No one had ever done it before. He was the first one in history. He was, therefore, he was my Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it came to pass that uh, when Tony was 59 years old, he came over and visited me in Sun Valley, Idaho. And we skied together, uh, which was one of the great treats yeah, of my life, yeah. for a weekend. Yeah. At the end of the weekend, we flew back to Las Vegas because on Monday morning he was going to go back to Kitzbühel, Austria. He was 59 years old and in perfect shape. Yeah. Uh, you know, it looked like he was 35. And that Sunday, we flew back from Sun Valley, Idaho for an hour flight. And we flew back at 10 in the morning. And at noon, we were going to play golf in the at shadow creek and i did not tell tony seiler that i had a house guest president bush was there and that Papa george, george bush, herbert Papa george bush. herbert worked. so george bush was going to get to the house before i did and he had stayed there before so we were old friends he was not with his wife this particular trip he was alone he was making a speech or something in las vegas and he stayed with me and uh we got to, before we got home I called the house and I got George Bush on the phone and I said to George, I said, look, you're down in the, there were two guest rooms facing one another in the guest wing of the house. I said, I'm bringing down with me Tony Seiler. And I told him who Tony was and he, he wasn't a skier, but George was a great athlete. He was yes. all American baseball yes. player. Yes. He, uh, I said, he's going to be in the room across from you. When I bring him, he's going to go in and change and then we'll go play golf. We'll go down to practice tee. I said, but let's let's surprise him. He has no idea that you're there, Mr. President. He said, okay. So I bring <laughs> Tony home. Tony goes in the room, changes clothes. George Bush is peeking out of the corner of his door. And when Tony Seiler comes out of his bedroom, George walks out and says, Tony Seiler, what a thrill. Tony Seiler, I'm, I'm around the corner peeking because I wanted to watch this. Tony Seiler takes a look at President Bush and he goes completely blank. He doesn't know what to say. So we, we and, and George grabs us. I'm so proud to meet you. I've always been amazed at what you were able to accomplish uh, in the Olympics. And Tony Seiler is totally speechless. And we had such fun. We go to play golf. And I had told the commander of Nellis Air Force Base mm -hmm. uh, that president was going to be there. We're going to be playing golf. It was in the spring in March. And the Thunderbirds were practicing before they start their annual summer tour, the demonstration team of the Air Force. I told uh, the general that the president was there. And he said, that the Thunderbirds want to salute the president. They love him. I said, well, we synchronized our watches and we said that at 3.15, we would be on the 14th fairway next to the sand trap halfway between the tee and the green at the landing area of the drive. That I'd make sure that at 3.15, the three of us, Tony Seiler, the president and I, would be in that position. And uh, the general said, okay, we'll come from the west over the clubhouse and you won't hear us till we're there, 
but you look that way. We checked our watches, we got organized, and I made sure that we paced ourselves. We got to the 14th hole, we hit our drives, we were all clustered. I made sure I hit the ball near the sand trap so that I'd be in the middle of the, the run of the of the fairway. And I had, uh, George was in the car cart with me and Tony had his cart and we were all gathered. And I said, and I, I saw that we had about a minute to go. And I said, I started some baloney, like look how pretty this hole is with the creek going down the left side. And I'm looking at my watch and sure enough, I hear a rumble. I say, Mr. President, look to your left. And the six planes come over in diamond formation about 150, 200 feet off the ground. And as they get over us, they turn on the afterburners, go straight up in the air with us looking up the tailpipes, and they do that straight up bomb burst where they go and they, yeah. they then, and, he, and George goes, oh my God. I said, Mr. President, the Thunderbirds and the folks at Nellis wanted to pay their respects, and they'd like you to stand here for a minute because they're not done yet. Then, they, 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 when they did the bomb burst, they, they split up, they're up high, you can't see them. I said, just look to the left. Within three or four minutes, they had reformed. They came from the west again, from his left, only this time they were in the diamond formation, and they were 200 feet off the ground. Man. And then, as they passed over us, staying in perfect diamond formation, they rolled the whole diamond over 360 degrees, you know, from left to yep. right. Yep. And, and at one point, the wingtips couldn't have been more than, than 100 feet above our head. And they did this diamond roll in perfect formation and went off. And he started to get emotional. Yeah. I said, there's one more pass, Mr. President. And this time... They came over and they had the landing gear down, the flaps down on these F-16s. And that means they can go very slow. But they still had the power on. And as they came over at 100 feet off the ground, they, they did the salute. And the salute is they waddle. They, they, you know, they, they drop the left wing, drop the right wing. They waddle mm -hmm. back and forth, all six of them. And he started, he teared up. Yeah. It said, you know, the thing I missed the most was the military. They were so wonderful. Wow. So that was that day with Tony Seiler yeah. and George Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> Steve Wynn, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. My fun, too. All right, folks, that's a show. We have to leave it uh, there for today. But thanks for listening, and please encourage your friends to listen as well, especially if they are never Trumpers. They need to hear this show. They need to hear this podcast. They need to hear us. Talk to you next week. This is Bill Bennett. Thanks for listening.